Hello and welcome to the next episode of Lost in Criterion. I'm John Patrick Owatari Dorgan, and with me, as always, a man is a man who once faked a head injury to catch a criminal. <laughs> I am the Adam Glass, and I find that the best way to catch a person uh, who is about to commit murder is to pretend to be unconscious and, and put myself in the position of their next murder victim. Right. Really, really lean into being the being an ideal target. <laughs> yes. Uh, yes. Just so weird. Uh, and put myself in a situation where I am uh wholly uh my life uh is wholly in the hands of people who don't really know what they're doing. Uh because the only guy who knows I'm actually alive uh doesn't is an know idiot. anything about medicine at yeah. all. Yeah. Uh it's a great I would, I would like to point out, like I know it's too early to start this, but like yeah. He really waits a long time before he puts a puts a a kibosh on the whole thing. He like really lets her. She's like half dead by the time he's like, "Oh wait, we should give her more. Stop giving her oxygen." There is a uh, there's a really really good reason that the detective himself decides that he should resign at the end of this narrative, right? Because he's all like, "Well, I done goofed." Yeah, he's a, he's a danger to the public, basically. <laughs> yeah. uh, honestly, like using using I'm going to go out on a limb. Using a a potential victim as bait is probably I'm going to guess. I hope against the rules, right? Especially in a way that incapacitates her. Right. Right. <laughs> Before we get to the movie this week, I want to talk about our Patreon. Patreon.com slash Lost in Criterion. If you want to support us, head over that way. For just a dollar a month, you not only keep us going, but you uh, get access to a bonus episode. We do a non-Criterion film over there that you get to vote on. I put together a list every month, uh, sometimes with help from other Patreon supporters. Uh, the uh, October poll, for instance, is a list of... Godzilla films inspired by the uh, release of Criterion's 1,000th spine number, which is yeah. a box set of 15 Godzilla movies. Uh, awesome. We picked Godzilla movies that are not in that box set uh, with the help of longtime supporter Jason Westhaver. Uh, and uh, yeah, it looks like a pretty pretty good list of movies. Um, but we have fun over there doing non-Criterion films. Sometimes, uh, sometimes they're we cheat a little bit and do an Eclipse series film, Criterion Sister Collection. Uh, for instance, from that, we watched God's Country, uh, the Louis Malle documentary, which was incredibly enjoyable. We've watched good films that uh, aren't in the Criterion Collection, or at least weren't when we uh, when we did it. I'm pretty sure Sidney Lumet's Failsafe, which we did a few months ago, uh, may be about to be announced uh, as part of the Criterion Collection, hey, I the mean, last I I consider yeah. that you know we we're really just prophetic is what we are. Right, right. Well, eventually uh, we'll find out that Will Ferrell's Kicking and Screaming oh, is going to be get a Criterion <laughs> like, release. Criterion makes it a box set with the other Kicking and Screaming. <laughs> oh, oh, I'm kind of I almost threw them in my mouth a little bit. It's uh, <laughs> a little bonus sporty. feature, a little sporty. bonus feature for you. Oh, right, yeah, it's like a, it's like, oh my god. Uh, uh, but yeah, we've done some really great movies over there. We've done some really, really terrible movies over yeah, no there. Joke, man. Uh, but we always, we always have fun. Try to get guests on there a little more often because it's easier to have a guest once a month and have a guest once a week. Um, but, uh, but yeah, we've had a lot of friends over on that and a lot of fun discussing just a, a very wide variety of movies. Not that the Criterion Collection has not given us a very wide variety of movies, uh, but uh, but casting your net outside the Criterion gets you things like uh, Critters 2 or Ernest Goes to Camp. Yeah, yeah so, absolutely. Yeah, we have some fun. Uh, 
For a little extra over there at $5 a month, we'd like to thank those supporters on air. So thank you to Adam Speakerman for your continued $5 support. Greatly appreciate that. A little above that, uh, $10 and above, we do something really, really amazing, I think. Uh, Pat makes a piece of art based on one of the movies we've watched recently, and I get that printed up on postcards. Then write a little personal thank you note and mail that off to our $10 and above supporters. We also like to thank those people on air, though. Thank you to Michael McGrath and Jason Westhaber for yes, your continued you $10 much. and yeah. above support. Uh, and thank you, Pat, for doing that art because it's always it's always great. But recently you oh. have been very much on in that phenomenal ways. That last one, ways. man, was yeah. too much fun. Yeah, the September one is, is phenomenal. This week, we are talking about Green for Danger, 1946 British thriller with some comedic elements, mainly a very stupid detective, uh, based on a 1944 detective novel of the same name. Uh, this is directed by Sidney Gilliatt. Uh, the book was written by Christiana Brand. Uh, Gilliatt was a screenwriter, uh, principally, uh, he co-produced with Frank uh, Launder here. Uh, Launder and he had been working together as screenwriters for years, uh, including the they are the only screenwriters on the film adaptation of The Lady Vanishes that we watched many, many years oh, ago. Oh, wow, okay. The Hitchcock film. Uh, and they are the only screenwriters. Hitchcock did not add anything to the screenplay, uh, which means that everything in The Lady Vantages that feels, feels Hitchcockian uh, as part of his oeuvre going forward uh, originated with Gilead and Launder. Wow. Yeah. Uh, they work together a lot. This is really their first time producing. Uh, and Gilead ends up directing as well. Uh, he had co- planned to co-direct with his uh, with his screenwriter um, and his uh, uh, his co-writer on the s- on the screenplay is Claude Gurney, uh, who unfortunately I believe he was struck and killed by a car uh, just as production was starting. Um, they directed before. Uh, but Gilead had never produced, uh, and uh, there's there's one great background story about this. Uh, they're filming at Pinewood Studios, and uh, everything's a set. The manor house, right. the everything. Uh, so they're actually on two different sound stages in Pinewood. Uh, and this is the first time he'd ever produced a film. He did not realize that it was the producer's job to pay rental fees. And he had never, ever seen <laughs> rental fees before for the Pinewood Studios when directing other movies. Uh, so he had no idea. <laughs> he had, oh he got God. he got a little bit of sticker shock when he found out that he was playing, that he was to pay full out-of-pocket rental fees for the studios. I guess he just, he just thought Pinewood Studios was a nationalized studio, apparently, which it almost was. But, uh, oh my God, though, that's amazing. But yeah. Uh this is a ridiculously convoluted murder mystery. The book was written in 1944, but takes place during the Blitz and in London. Uh, for the film adaptation, they transfer the action to more of a rural community and transfer the time to a very specific time in the summer of like 44, 45, when uh, Germany was having a campaign of the uh, what what are called in the film doodle bugs uh, what were called within Germany Germany uh, maybugs um, which is the German name for what we call June bugs here in the US uh, and that gets you down to why they're called what they're called if you've ever seen a June bug in North America you know that buzzing noise they make when they fly and that buzzing noise is very reminiscent of the putter of the uh, injection engine that is used in these bombs. So they are self-propelled bombs uh, that essentially just fly until they're out of gas. So you hear the buzzing, and then when the buzzing stops, you better take cover, because it means it's right above you and falling. Uh, It creates a very tense uh, atmosphere to live in, I'm quite certain. 
uh, that that's, this movie does a good job of, of telegraphing, but also it is something that the people who are watching this movie, it's still fresh in their mind, right? It's a movie that right. came out I in mean, 1946 that deals with the war for comedic effect. Which yeah, I mean, is... I, w- I would say that they, they, they do deal with the, 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 the rocket attack or the, yeah. the rocket attacks, but like they are, they could have been more central to the plot to make them more oh, to, to amp that up. It, it exists. They, they definitely happen. It's not they don't happen. It's just you know. They... Well, it is. It is a one of these bombings is what kicks off the plot because the, uh, right. the postman who dies under surgery uh, is is injured in one of these bombings. Um, also, uh, since everyone had a motive to kill the postman. One of the background motives is that uh, he is the head of the local response to those bombings and uh, failed to save someone, uh, which provides motivation for one of the murderers or one of the suspected murderers, uh, who is, it turns out, the one who did it. Uh, But everyone's a suspect in this film because it is an Agatha Christie style locked room puzzle. Yeah. I was going to say like this one, despite being a sprawling estate on this. Yeah. Yeah. It's pretty. Oh, well this person's motivation is this, this person's motivation is this, and this one has this motivation. Which one is it? Which is, which is pretty great for, for the plot of this. Uh, in the book, the detective is not an idiot. Uh, I, I mean, I, I, don't know if the framing of the book provides for the detective making mistakes and resigning at the end because of the mistakes he made. Uh, but in the book, the the detective is not played for comedy. Uh, Alistair Sims, who who stars here as the the detective, made an active choice to uh, to play him more comedically. Um, to the to the benefit of the film, I think it works out really really well. His character is is really great as a as a sort of incompetent, funny detective guy. Uh, not to the benefit of the people who die after he shows up, but right, whatever. It's a movie. Someone's got to die. Uh, the novel had actually been rejected from adaptation by Rank Organization. Uh, so Gilia picked it up uh, and read on a train and just liked it so much that he uh, that he picked it up. <laughs> Everybody comments on the irony of the title of this movie, Green for Danger. Uh, despite uh, green normally being good, but yeah, I mean it's okay. Yeah, it's in <laughs> reference to the uh, yeah. to the gas canisters used by the anesthesiologists who have nitrous to knock people out. Oxygen uh, to uh, to balance out and revive them if need be, and then CO two for some reason, <laughs> which is painted green. Uh, and the ultimate murder plot is that someone painted over the green. Yeah, and then like you know the te- the giveaway is the fact that their 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 scrubs have still have the green paint, paint on them. Or, yeah, the <laughs> yes, black, black paint. paint. On them. It's all I mean, it's all fine. It's also all like in a movie that's not in color. <laughs> right. Which is its own thing, right? Where it's like, oh, I promise you, this is green. In a you movie where what... you can't tell the difference between red paint, green paint, and blood paint. on yeah. someone's... Yeah, exactly. You're like, yeah. I don't know what you're talking about. Um, the reality of the matter is, is like, wasn't it... Um, I forget what, a, what was I re- reading about, but I read about some story about a film that was being shot and like what the actual sh- set had to look like because it was... You had to make you, the colors you had to pick for like making oh, black yeah, and white yeah. movies look good are like wild ass colors, right? Because they like talk about, green you know, just looks like black. Like green just looks like black. It looks right. identical to black. You can't tell the difference in black and white film, and so you had to pick a bunch of weird stuff right. to like make it work. They didn't do that here. Everything just looks like black. But I also love that in universe they seem to have leaned into that because the uh, the second murder uh, they are stabbed. Through the black paint stain yeah. on the on the uh, on the scrubs, so as to hide the fact that that stain exists. 
Yeah, with and they blood. cut the stain out. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's wild. It's so. Yeah, apparently the people in this movie also can't see color. Everyone here <laughs> right. has color blindness, uh, which Just, is kind of wild. Well, you see, back in back in the forties, the world was black and white. Pet. Yeah, well, we know that. Like we 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 have direct experience with dealing with that problem. Um, so. uh, there's so much good in this movie, but but to kick it off, my very my very favorite exchange in this movie is when the inspector arrives and the head of the hospital says, "I do hope everything can be handled discreetly." And he essentially says, "Nope, not gonna happen." Yeah, no, it's yeah. The, the inspector is a da- is a danger to the public, but also right. a fun character. Yes, yes. Uh, uh, he is our narrator as well, and we start off. This is this is this movie is framed as the entirety of his letter of resignation, recounting uh, all of the bad things he did. In response to this murder yeah. trial case uh, and all of the ways he failed, so so please, I need to be fired now. Yeah. Uh, at least he recognizes that he's a danger I, I, to society, right? I mean, as a as a storytelling me- mechanism, I like it. I like that yeah. idea of a resignation letter as your as your storytelling method. I I think that's good. Um. Uh, I I I deeply enjoy. Um, let me be honest. I deeply enjoy fifties uh, thrillers. Yeah, it's a thing I because because like they exist in a world that that basically just this kind of movie just doesn't even exist anymore. Um, not not generally like right. the word what we mean when we say thriller is just not this. Right, right, right. Um, and and I love it because. I don't know. There's something about them that, like, I mean, I also enjoy. I guess the closest you would get is like Hercule Poirot or something like that. Like, yeah, and uh, occasionally they, those still get. Yeah, uh, I mean, I, I've watched that that I guess it's masterpiece theater series or whatever quite a bit as a child, and I've always enjoyed that. Like, especially kind of like, I I I understand that a lot of people don't enjoy it because a lot of times the the possible answer is not really given to you. You know what I mean? Like you're not given enough information to actually solve the crime on your own. I have no problem with that. I enjoy watching people do ridiculous shit. And then right. like you have to have multiple motive it because like if there was only one person with a motive, um, the, it would end very quickly, right? So multiple people have to have reasons. And I really enjoy those kind of movies because it cre- it paints a picture of the world that is batshit insane. Always like th- I mean when you really lay out this movie here. This is a batshit insane universe that they live in, right? Like, oh yeah, like eight people could have wanted this person to die. But that's not that's not how life is. That's right. That's like, uh, nobody's walking around like, I mean, yeah, sure, there are definitely people out there where multiple people want them dead, but those yeah. people are generally pretty obvious. Like, oh yeah, um, everybody hates this person, wants them to die. To to give you some some hope for the future, uh, yeah. I am very much looking forward to. Knives Out, uh, Rain Johnson's latest film is a a locked room, okay, uh, style uh, Ooh, murder mystery. I love it. I love I love <laughs> these kind of movies. I I love them yeah. deeply. I, it they actually they key into the same thing that for me that police procedurals do, but without yeah. the gross police part, uh, which <laughs> right. is kind of fun, right? Like because you just you know what I mean. Like it's still a person working through a thing, but yeah. without like the the you know. The boot on the neck of society element. Which is <laughs> there nice. you go. There you go. Um, I don't know if you understand. Uh, private detectives usually answer to the police in these stories. I don't. Oh, know I know if they you always do. It's that, always, but... but like they always, but usually in these. Believe me, I'm aware. I have watched a lot of these, but they also always have this weird antagonistic relationship with the police That's a lot true. of times. That's fair. And yeah. like they don't, and they always part of their deal is always making the police wait for them to get the right answer, <laughs> right. which is always a really fascinating dynamic for me. It's like, oh no, no, you assholes are going to wait over here because you don't know. Because like you know, in order for these stories to work, right, the actual police always have to just be total fucking dumbasses. Yeah. Who can't solve the crime themselves, right? I mean, like we've all we've all watched Monk, you know. We know how this works, <laughs> right? Right, and and you know that's how most whodunits function. Yeah, they and have this to, one because otherwise it would be the police solving the crime. That right. would be what and, would happen. 
And that's that's where this one's also delightful in that it should be the police solving that crime. And it is a classic whodunit. But the police detective who shows up is bad at it. He's just bad at his job. But there is no private detective to roll in right. and actually solve the crime. Right. So to yell at just, how stupid he is. Yeah. And so instead, instead his plan is instead, I'm going to create a bait scenario. Right. And then after everything falls apart and multiple people die on his watch, uh, then he decides, you know what? That was a bad idea, and I'm a bad cop. <laughs> yeah, I did not do a good job. I am not good at this this job. Perhaps I perhaps you should fire me, or at least introduce some sort of third party who could berate me at every turn <laughs> yeah, about how I, bad I am. About who's what I'm definitely doing. smarter than me in many ways. Yes, yes please. <laughs> perhaps you can have a Belgian accent. Ah, <laughs> uh, yeah, this movie. <sighs> I just really think it's fascinating that this movie was made in 1946. That that yeah. what is essentially an escapist, comedic leaning whodunit, uh, still has trappings of the war. That they didn't just set this in 1932, or or you know, or especially since they're doing studio work and they don't have yeah. to shoot live. Like, there's no reason why you would need to make it current. Right. Right. I mean, I guess you do. I mean, like, in the end, that's the plot, right? I mean, like, the whole right. plot the, is built around. The bombing the is war. there, so, yes, it's important. But but since Gilead's fascination with the story was specifically about the anesthesia aspect of the murder, that could exist independently, right? But Absolutely, yeah. everyone's motivations have to do with something about the war. Yeah. or Or something... Some some aspect of their life that is deeply affected by the war and would only happen because of the war. Like, even the love triangle only happens because of the war, right? Right. Because yeah. people are stationed elsewhere and, and made to go here or there. So, you know, you could you could fudge a little bit of that, but, but so much of this. Like the, like the one nurse who they suspect because the postman reacted negatively to her voice. And then it turns out that her twin sister lives in Germany and produces pro-Nazi propaganda Which and broadcasts it. Amazing, by the way. And broadcasts the it to Britain. And then, and then everyone else is just like, oh, I guess that's, yeah, that's true. That's fine. The weird thing is, like, yeah, so she's trying to hide it. But, like, this is broadcast to, like, how is he literally the first person she's met that actually listens to that shit? Right. Like, I don't understand... How that's possible. Uh, that's fair. <laughs> I mean, that's just, that is a weird thing. That That is a bit of a weirdness of this movie because it's like, wait a minute, I don't. Yeah, that doesn't seem good. But yeah, the, yeah, this is, this is a rolling murder plot. Each, each murder is meant to, is committed to cover up the last murder. Right. Right. Um, which is, which is always delightful too. Uh, but then, um, so so in that, the actual motive for the actual killer is deeply entangled with the war because it is it, she murdered the postman because he was in charge of recovery uh, when her, I believe, mother's house was bombed. Yes, yeah. and and they did they failed to save her mother. Uh, so she blames she blames him for her mother's death, which is its own. PTSD motivation for murder too, right? Because obviously it's right. not it's not the postman's fault that that your mother died. It's uh Hitler's. Uh but right. Uh but you know, she's 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 yeah, clearly she's suffering from a lot of other problems as well. We see right, her right. have a really hard time with a lot of um stress factors. Right. Uh, throughout right. the movie. Right. Though she is still very smart about things the way the way she attempts to murder the final nurse uh is uh a very smart way to attempt the murder when you know everyone is watching for a murder she leaves the gas on and then she accidentally discovers her before she's died of uh carbon monoxide poisoning so she drops her down the stairs uh, but but in a manner that makes it look like she's trying to save her. 
um, and tripped. Yeah, I mean, it's all it's yeah, it's it's very much a, a very much in a premeditated right. murder, right? So it's got all that going for it. And then she doesn't actually die. Uh, is in fact uh, quite fine? okay. Yeah, <laughs> it's completely fine. Uh, full recovery, but then the detective says, "No, we're g- we've locked you away from all of the doctors." Uh, determined our, uh, by ourselves that you're fine without consulting any doctors. Right. We and know now we'd like for you to... Like, pr- damn it. I, I feel like the fact that she agrees to the plan is is ultimate proof that she did suffer some amount of brain damage. <laughs> yeah, you're probably right. Yeah. She's actually suffering from like a really severe concussion and just... <laughs> they're just sort of taking advantage of it. And then they pump her full of carbon dioxide. <laughs> God. Ah. <sighs> Which I'm sure didn't didn't cause any further brain damage. I'm sure it's everything's uh, probably now. Of course, of course, when they pumped her full of carbon dioxide, no one knew the means of the murder yet. So, uh, but like, <laughs> okay, th- but that can't be true. Well, I guess that is true because they didn't. It is true. They didn't it figure. Is yeah, true. that's it's the terrible dumb thing. That it's true, but it's, it's true. It's dumb yeah. that it's true, and it's dumb that his ultimate plan to reveal the murderer is to recreate. Let somebody try to murder. Yeah. Yes. Yes. What a weird movie. Like I love it. Like don't get me wrong. I love weird. this shit. Like, but it's it's so dumb. Yeah. <laughs> Can I ask a question? Yeah, sure. I probably don't have an answer. Criterion co- what? Oh, you I probably don't have an answer, but please. Do you think, like, this is just in the Criterion Collection because this guy worked without, with Hitchcock and the sort of Hitchcock aesthetic stuff? Um, Gilead and Launder were very, very similar uh, to proliferic, <laughs> proliferation of their work to Prowl and pa- Pressburger. Uh, they got into directing a little bit later. Uh, so with the Prowl and Pressburger stuff, we already know that Criterion has a uh, affinity for post-World War II British right. uh, workhorse filmmakers um, who are producing amazing work, mind you, but they are film-a-year directing teams, writing directing teams, right? Right. So, these guys worked apart a little more often than Prowl and Pressburger did. They maybe weren't as tight a team by the time we're post-war as Prowl and Pressburger did. They still worked together a lot, but, like, Prowl and Pressburger, I get the impression they very much were dual directors making decisions together. Uh, Gilead and Laudner seem to be more like the Coen brothers, where they flip a coin and decide which one's going to direct and which one's going to uh, produce um, right. each time out. Uh, but also, again, they got into directing pretty late. They're, they were definitely principally screenwriters more than they were directors. They produced uh, quite a few movies. I mean, they wrote a lot. They produced a lot. They directed right. less yeah, I mean, yeah. I just I bring that up not because it, there's nothing wrong with this movie, but it's also like there's nothing that I would call groundbreaking or like really out there. Well, I don't here. I don't either. know. I think I think it is out there in that it is an escapist comedy thriller. Yeah, I mean, I guess that's true. Set in 1940s or set during yeah. the war, made in 1946. That's, that's true, right? That's a that's a quick turnaround for that sort of thing. I mean, I meant more from a from a like storytelling but yeah, perspective. From an actual like, storytelling, I mean, no. <laughs> um, so so this is a movie that that I would say if I can come up with a justification for for Criterion, it's an ideological justification in that it yeah, is it unique sense. that it exists at the time it exists in the way it exists. Yeah, I can I can get on board with that. That makes sense. Uh, but I don't. Yeah, I, I can see that. Yeah, I mean, yeah, like I said, I think that makes sense. It's just when I when I watch it, like it, it, yeah, just within the um, the the sort of uh, parameters of just like you know pure like storytelling. Yeah, it's just I mean, it's very much just a standard sort of is a detective story with the with the 
with the added twist that the detective sucks at his job, right. which is not new in 1946. That's not a new thing. So, um, yeah, yeah. They were they were also sort of explicitly thriller guys. They wrote a lot of different thrillers, and you know, as I've said, we've already seen one other one that they wrote. You know, they they did uh, Lady Vanishes, right? Um, so you know, there's also the argument that there's just a really good uh, good example of where they're of being thriller writers. Um, one of our supporters, I think it was Adam Speakerman, brought up an interesting thing in regards to the uh, Monsters and Mad Men box set that we talked about um, uh-huh. a couple months ago, which, you know, ultimately is only, what, three releases ago by Criterion standards, right. because we had another box set all through last month, and now we are on the, the second film out from that second box set. Uh he brought up that the reason Monsters and Mad Men seems to exist without very many supplements uh, is that it came out right around the same time as the Eclipse series was being formalized and figured uh-huh. out and announced. So everything like Monsters and Mad Men that came out after Monsters and Mad Men would be an Eclipse release. In, right, that makes sense. Whereas Monsters and Mad Men being right on that cusp ended up in the actual Criterion Collection because they weren't sure what they wanted to do yet. So it's possible, given the timing, that this is also sort of something that maybe would have ended up in the Eclipse series if they had gotten a hold of it a little bit later. I don't know how that timing actually works out or or if that's an accurate description. But based, based on the idea he presented for Monsters and Mad Men... I think it's it's certainly within the realm of possibility that maybe right, this okay. isn't meant to be a Criterion release, but it's something they had when they didn't have any other way to release it. But also, I think Gilead and Launder did enough work and enough interesting work that they should be recognized and given some amount of recognition. Obviously, they're not Powell and Pressburger, who are working at the same time under similar conditions. And doing phenomenal, interesting work. Yeah. Right. Uh, I mean, yeah. I mean, like I said, there's nothing. There's yeah. nothing wrong. Wander and Gilead aren't producing movies. masterpieces. Right. Uh, but they are making a fun and interesting movie. And the Lady Vanishes, I would say, the Lady Vanishes is my favorite Hitchcock movie. No, period. I I liked so. the Lady Vanishes yeah. a lot actually. I did. I I'm I'm yeah. No, it's it's. More of just an observation of like, just you know, this is the like it's got a lot of it's interesting framing and stuff like that. But yeah, I mean, it is just a convoluted detective story, right? <laughs> at its heart, uh, and and you know, giving we we've seen other movies that are in the collection, they feel like they're in the collection because like, well, we just had to pick one of this very prolific producer or something's like oeuvre that we want to just kind of we feel is very indicative of who they are and we pick this one and here we go um and i i can't say honestly that that's not necessarily what's happening here to a certain extent you know what i mean yeah. like i do feel like that might be true is that like like oh well these people made a lot of films and they were important because you know people watched those films and it affected film going forward so here's an example of that um and there's nothing wrong with that, but you know, uh, right. it just feels like that might might be the case. It might be, and it very well could be. Uh, but we're not Criterion, so we'll never know. No, we're not. Um, and my crystal ball into their minds is, has never worked very well. Never, never, ever. Uh, but yeah. Um, like I said, uh, Gilead produced this, which means they, they did establish their own production company. Um, which, interestingly enough, they called Individual Pictures. Huh. Uh, that this long-standing team established a, a, uh, a company called Individual. Um, it's an interesting choice. Yeah, yeah, it's great. Great. Uh, 
but yeah, they ultimately, I think they're doing, I'll just come back to what I already said. They're doing some amount of interesting work and they are a longstanding team. So Criterion wants to feature them as a longstanding team and give us something unique to the time period. And I think this is very much unique to the time period and unique to the perspectives on that time period of the people putting it out. Right. Because Powell and Pressburger aren't going to make a comedic, a a dark comedy about (laughs) the end of the war. Right. Right. True. And said it during the war. (laughs) Not that they didn't make comedies about war. Yeah. (laughs) Life and Times of Colonel Blimp is, is an oftentimes very funny movie. Uh, and, uh, oh, what was that? Oh, goodness. I can't remember the one about the, the, the town mayor who's going around putting glue in women's hair to keep them. Oh God. What is the name of that movie? Oh man. I can't remember either. Yeah. Also spoiler to that because it's not revealed that it's the mayor doing it until the last 10 minutes. Yeah. You kind of like probably should have thrown that spoiler warning up there at the beginning. Uh, Not that I'm sure a lot of people are like, Oh man, I was going to watch that this weekend. I just, I just assume that anyone listening to lost criterion is listening as we go and watching all the movies with us. Uh, I know that I, I know for a fact that that is not true. Uh, that but, would be so hard. Like, think right? about the amount of time and energy we put into doing this. <laughs> Can you ima- imagine? That would be so. Oh God. Yes, yeah, it'd be I, a terrible please, way to do it. Please, please don't do that unless you just like really <laughs> want to. Like. But all I mean by that is to say that anything we've talked about previously is fair game to the conversation now. Right. So. Like, well, yeah, well, I mean, the way this podcast works, it kind of has to be right. Like, yeah. if we can't self be self referential, we're 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 fucked, basically. Like, you know, we we have to be able to do that, right? Um, especially since the way we've decided to go about going through the Criterion Collection requires us to be able to look back and be like. Treat the Criterion Collection to a certain extent as though it is chronological, or at least like logical in its ordering. Yeah, uh, it, this is a this is a ridiculous. Uh, it is definitely, yeah, but, it is uh, definitely not logical in its. Yeah, but nonetheless, here we are. This is what we do. Um, so yeah, we just have to kind of go with it. Uh, obviously, for for a good who done it. Uh, everyone should have convoluted motives that could make them. Oh, absolutely, yeah. But this it, movie seems like it, extra convoluted in every it way. It does a little bit, right? Well, I think it's <laughs> I think it's because they put too many people in it, right? Like, usually Maybe. in these, like, parlor room mystery type deals, you've got maybe three possible murderers. Yeah. Whatever the number is here, five or whatever, is a bit much. <laughs> I suppose. And, it, and also, especially when you throw in the extra kind of um, twist to it that the person who is actually guilty is um, did it because their motivations were not... Oftentimes in these kind of stories, the motivations are pretty basic, right? They're like something to do with money or revenge or something like that. And hers yeah. is revenge, but it's revenge for like almost something existential. You know what I mean? It's like you're responsible in a very obtuse way for the death of my mother is is a little bit more – is a less clear motivation than these movies – these stories usually have, right? You know what I mean? Like – Usually the motivation is like, well, I'm getting revenge for this thing, or you, I need your money for this thing, or something like that. Whereas this is a little bit, a little bit more blurry. Um, yeah, it's not quite as clear. Um, which does also make that that following that through line as an audience member a little bit harder, because uh, it's just not, you know, it's not the way it usually works. That's fair. It's not a bad thing. I mean, like having complicated motivations for your murder suspects is nice in a uh, in a in a whodunit. It's just you know, yeah. This he doesn't oversimplify particularly... a whodunit either, right? He doesn't condescend to the audience in any manner in this no. movie, right? No, is... to the to the point where you're kind of you're almost incapable. Maybe like, maybe condescend to me a little bit. Maybe we don't. Well, maybe I mean, we don't need like, the that's... twin sister Nazi spy. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, maybe maybe drop a like drop one pot, potential uh potential murder. Maybe maybe the per, maybe that character just isn't on the list of suspects. Uh or is only on the list of suspects because she was in the room and nothing else. Yeah. Uh but you know, that's you know, they yeah. wanted I I think yeah, they just wanted it to be really convoluted. I my my issue in a weird way that I always have with this kind of stuff is that you know I I I don't particularly care about not being able to figure it out on my own cuz a I'm dumb. I will never figure it out on my own. Um but I like in the back of my head I like to know that that was a potential for somebody who's smarter than me. It is impossible uh, given the way this plays out is impossible possible for you to, to know that to guess at who committed the murder in any way where the a- characters on screen have not. And the movie actively, even to the end, wants us to think that Dr. Barnes is the murderer and is Which about is okay. to murder. That's also cool. That is yeah. also neat. I thought it do. was a great, the ending was great. I, I like that as a, as a, as a, as a thing in yeah. a, in a whodunit, like leading your, your audience by the nose right up to the end is a really neat thing to do. And I always like it. Um, but I also like, I like to believe I like movies where I can plausibly believe that somebody much smarter than me was like, I know who fucking did this. And we're um, right. Yeah, there's no way to guess it. This that's song. impossible in this movie. I, if you could accomplish both, it's great. But like, I don't think you could. Yeah. I don't think that's true. This movie, and there's nothing wrong with that. There's again, there's nothing wrong with that. It's fine. Like that's that is not a real problem. But it's always something in my mind when I watch a whodunit that I like to like keep an eye out for. Yeah. Like, were there clues when I go back and think about it? Were there clues that like somebody smarter than me could have latched on to? Yeah. Um, it's also, it, it's a bit of a problem in that regard that uh, everyone's motivations are fully revealed at the very moment. They are either confirmed to not be the murderer or to be the murderer. <laughs> right. 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 Like we, we get a hint earlier that the one nurse's voice triggered the postman some for some reason. Right. I mean, that was probably like that. That's the closest thing to a true, yeah, like clue for the audience because we did actually hear the radio announcer at the beginning. Right. Like that's a thing we heard. Right. Like, but beyond that, that that's after that it, that that whole thing sort of falls apart in the sense that we just don't get that. Right. Anymore. Yeah. And and I suppose if you if you suspected the one nurse, you might suspect that she was only pretending to save uh Freddie. And, right. and and I suppose you could you could think that she purposefully tripped on the stairs, but Yeah, I mean that's it's a stretch. It's possible though. But right? yeah. I don't think Certainly, certainly, me watching it, I did not have those thoughts while while going right at it. Uh, but it could in in that this movie keeps you guessing. So you might in in being suspicious of everyone. There is there is a fair reading that some people might watch this movie and think, "Oh, she must have done that. She must just be faking this." Right. Uh, because who else who else could have turned off the gas in the nurse's room? I actually at one point thought uh when that sequence started, I thought maybe uh the woman who ends up unconscious that I thought maybe Freddie was the murderer and had oh, yeah, purposely just, trying yeah, to poison trying herself. To up. Yeah. Yeah. In order to throw it off. That's that's where my mind went went during that scene. So I was wrong. <laughs> <laughs> well I yeah, I had my suspicions and you know, they were they were always wrong, but that's okay. Yeah. I do think the uh, the scenes of surgery are filmed really well. Uh, just mm. as a Mazen scene, uh, the way they keep cutting to the uh, to the airbag and the the sound design with the the mm. hissing of the gases and and the yeah and and of course it's it's a surgical scene, so everyone's face is covered, and we just but the the actors and actresses, their eyes are really sell what's going on very much. Right. I mean the 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 bag especially is a tell for how the how the patient is doing is a really right, right, is right. a really neat uh, right. is a neat thing. And done when very we well. It's probably one of the best parts of it of the design, yeah. honestly. Just because 
it, it works very, very yeah. well. You know exactly how well that patient and, is doing. And once you visually establish that that's that particular hissing sound is that, then it functions exactly like a modern heart monitor functions right. in any any scene like that today. Yeah, that you you have that visual that visual tie in, and then the audio cues continue. So, right. So it functions very well when we're dealing in an era where that has not been shorthanded yet. Like now, you don't you don't need an establishing shot of the heart monitor. You just need to have that. Right. Yeah. You don't have to teach anybody how that right. shit works. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So here, you you do kind of have to teach people how that works. So he Gilead very does that very seamlessly and very well. So yeah. He's he's a great director, um, but again, he's no pal. So, <laughs> right, yeah. you know, I understand why we see a half dozen Pal and Pressburger films and two movies that these guys worked on and only one that they directed. Right. So, but yeah. Uh, but it's just I I loved watching this though. It was definitely I, especially I especially that. after last week's. Uh, yeah, the bicycle thief. Uh, we, uh, I needed something a little more lighthearted. Yeah. So. See, I watched them in radically the wrong order, but that's <laughs> fine. Well, no, because I knew bicycle thieves was going to be intense, and so I was like, "Well, yeah. I." There's times where, like, when I know a movie is going to be really intense, I like to set aside like an afternoon in the middle, like to really like dig into it. Uh, not like. In the evening after work when I'm just sort of like hanging out, which is like this movie, I was like, ah, oh, it's a murder mystery. I'll be okay. I'll just watch this like while I'm doing other, you know, while I'm hanging out, maybe like grading papers, especially if it's in English. It makes it real easy to do that. Um, and, you know, I was not wrong. I mean, I could follow the movie pretty well. Uh, and so, yeah, it, it, you know, it's just it doesn't it means I do it in the wrong order a lot, actually. So happens a lot yeah it happens just our recording schedule doing two two films uh a weekend um it ends up happening a lot uh i don't want to uh to show our hand too much but we're actually watching a pal and pressburger film for our next episode oh are Uh, we yeah 49th parallel uh and (laughs) if two movies could function uh, 49th parallel. First off, it came out in 1941, so so pre-war. It's the third movie Powell and Pressburger made together. Uh, but Powell and Pressburger specifically made 49th parallel to try and convince America to enter the war. Oh my god! Powell's got a quote: "I hoped it might scare the pants off the Americans." And Eric Pressburger, Eric Pressburger says, Goebbels considered himself an expert on propaganda, but I thought I'd show him a thing or two. Oh, my God. Oh. Uh, but, yeah, so that's next week, and, and we definitely look forward to that because uh, Powell and Pressburger make phenomenal films. Uh, and this being a war drama yes, made yeah. during the war, I'm sure, is a great movie. But they also make propagandistic films. Uh, yep. Which is one thing I... I appreciate about Green for Danger is that directly post-war, it is escapist still. It is not. It is not propaganda, even though it has trappings of the war in it, right? Yeah, I mean, it's not. It's not promoting any any sort of right. like, you know, pro United Kingdom, right? Yeah, it's just. It's just. Yeah. And ultimately, the motivations for the murder are about the failings of the home front, too, right? Right, yeah. It's a, and it and it very much is about the sort of, uh, I, in in some ways I think it exists as a sort of, in some ways to meant to be a sort of catharsis piece for people yeah. who were on the home front to be like, yeah, you guys also, shit wasn't awesome here either. Right. You know, like that. The, just acknowledging that for people in movies is probably pretty important, right? To yeah, like yeah, you can't just like ignore that the the people at home also had a real shitty time yeah um yes of course 
but acknowledging that they had a terrible, terrible go at it, even uh, even while making an escapist film, is also very interesting. <laughs> it is, yeah, it is an interesting yeah. thing to do. But but even beyond all the interesting ideological things around this film, the film's actually just a really fun and good film. I think probably this is kind of a shorter episode, but I think we can probably pull this to a close because I yeah, don't know I don't that think there's a lot more we can talk about anymore. without just naming our favorite things about it. Uh, but yeah, Green for Danger uh, from 1946, directed by Sidney Gilliatt, co-produced by Gilliatt and his longtime writing partner, Frank Laudner. Uh, Laudner and Gilliatt, again, they also wrote uh, The Lady Vanishes for Hitchcock, and they wrote a lot for a lot of different people, so I won't be surprised if we see them again. Uh, but next week, we'll be talking about 49th Parallel from Powell Pressburger, who... Uh, Maybe it's just a, I don't know. Since Powell and Pressburger's film is pre-war, well, not pre-war, but 1941, um, and uh, and this is definitely a post-war film. It's Criterion often gives us like a a back-to-back that seems themed, right? And and showing us a Gilliatt Laudner film and then a Powell and Pressburger seems like kind of a kind of a. Oh yeah, we wanted to tell you about these guys who are great and under uh, underrepresented, and also this is why they were underrepresented, <laughs> right? Yeah, <laughs> because yeah, they I weren't as that. good as these other guys. <laughs> um, but yeah, it's it's an interesting choice. But Criterion is inscrutable. So <laughs> yeah, yeah, they are. <laughs> Thank you once again for listening to Lost in Criterion. I am as always Liam Glass. With me as always, John Patrick Oyatari Durgan, and we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. listening to Lost in Criterion, hosted by John Patrick Oatari Dorgan and the Adam Glass, who edits it. We're a production of withtwobrains.com. Jonathan Hape does the music. Check him out at jonathanhape.bandcamp.com. And hey, if you like us, why don't you give us a review on iTunes, like us on Facebook, or support us on Patreon. It's patreon.com slash lostincriterion. We'd appreciate it.